month. Place the Ark of the Covenant law in it and shield the Ark with the curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it, then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance of the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him and consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father, so that they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. This is the word of the Lord. Wonderful, Joe. Thank you for reading. Judith, I do apologize. We missed your beautifully crafted prayers, as always. Um, through our negligence, it would have done us good to have read that perhaps uh, before this whole service. And we see the attention that God instructs Moses, the attention rather, that God instructs Moses to pay to the tabernacle and to all of their corporate worship. Um, and if we paid attention to that lead, plugging it into that box, then all would have been well. Perhaps we better pray as we sit. Father, we want to give ourselves to focus on the discipline and the privilege of worship. Teach us, we pray, over these next few weeks. Please be in my speaking. Help us to hear what you're saying as we study your word, as we digest it, as we apply it to our lives. For your glory. Amen. Worship. You'll see from the sheet today the question um, and an attempt this morning at a definition of worship. In its widest sense, 
The word derives from uh, an Anglo-Saxon word. I've been making use of it recently. Literally, worth-ship. To ascribe worth or value or beauty to something or someone. Implicit in that ascribing value or beauty is, is an involvement of the whole of our lives, our thinking, our feeling, our emotions, our spirit, are, are all wrapped up in the response of our worship. So that in a sense, the discipline of worship, the process, if you like, is a continual re-evaluation of the way in which we live the whole of our lives. Worship gives us that degree of perspective through prioritization that causes us, impels us to inspect every element of our lives and to review the way in which we live accordingly. Worthship, to ascribe, to give honor, worth, value to something. We do it all the time, actually, in the general sense. The, the disciplines of worship, the processes of worship, of reprioritizing, we do all the time. You received Christmas presents recently, I trust. And what you will have done, you will have opened up Christmas presents and you will have begun the process, the kind of workings of worship. New socks, wonderful. So those ones in my drawer with holes in, I'll throw out now because as I reevaluate, reprioritize, these ones, these new ones are of more value, they're of greater worth than the old ones. And so I recalibrate, I reprioritize, I apportion worth, value, and, and my life is involved in that process. I'll make changes. My behavior will change. My priorities will change. That's an ongoing anticipation. We, we do it all the time, not just with our possessions. We do it with, with our, our time. We're in the supermarket. We're queuing. The queue, we've done, we did all, we were careful with the checks as we approached the queue with our trolley of goods. We made a careful inspection of all the queues. This one was definitely the shortest. All the members in the queue had the smallest baskets. It was moving the quickest, and yet as soon as we joined it, it's Murphy's Law, isn't it? All the other queues are going through. You, you even, you measured that lady in the red top, that guy in the green jumper, oh, Mark, I started where he started. And he's winning, they're winning. And I'm stuck here, and it's wasting my time until I realize that the person standing in front of me is a celebrity. It's someone really famous. They're off the telly, they're in the films. And there they are, stuck in the same time space as me. I can talk with them. I really like them. I love their work. I've always wanted to meet with them. Suddenly, I'm recalibrating, reprioritizing. I don't want the queue to move. Let it take an hour. Worthship. Ascribing value or worth and seeking to adjust and reprioritize our lives accordingly. Worship in the general sense. Christian worship. 
what is Christian worship in particular? I bet if I was to ask you, might be a really interesting sort of opening question in uh, our house groups as they re-meet this week. Incidentally, if you're not in a house group, you miss out on the privilege of kind of digesting the talk and, and exploring it further. Come and see me afterwards. I'd love to see if we can place you in a midweek group. Here's an opening question. What is worship? And I bet... I bet that the majority of us would argue, answer something like Christian worship is something that we do. Christian worship is something that, that, that if you like, emanates from us. Yes, I, I'm sure we'd quickly qualify it. Excuse me. <clears throat> we'd quickly qualify it by saying in response to, to God as we as we perceive God as he's revealed to us, then, then worship is something that we do. But I want, to, I want to argue that in the big picture, as we start from first things, actually, worship is an activity that emanates from God. Worship is an activity that emanates from God. It originates with him. Trinity. God as three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, pre-existent. In other words, in existence before we were even aware of ourselves and the world in which we lived. God in three persons is living in perfect union, perfect relationship, acknowledging the beauty and the worth and the value that there is Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father and Son. Theologians attempt to describe what this looks like. They call it, the the word they use is perichoresis, this this dancing together, this spinning together. The nearest human visual aid we get, I guess, is like a a really well-organized Kaylee or barn dance. You know, where all the individual partners are, are called the caller calls them into uh, these sort of whirring shapes where we interlock and dance with one another so that whilst there are individual um, dancers, they're meshed and merged into one beautiful dance. The analogy falls short. We can pick holes in the analogy, but it, it's, it's some kind of idea of what is going on in heaven right now and has always been going on. God fully appreciating the persons of the Trinity. So the Father, I mean, just to speculate and to try and imagine, the Father gazing upon the eternal Son, who John tells us was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. And he gazes on the Son and he sees God from God, light from light, true God from true God. as the Nicene Creed has it. He sees beauty and perfection and holiness. This, in that sense, worship emanating from the very heart of God and who he is. And as the earth spill of that desire to draw others into the dance, as it were, creation, the majesty, the wonder, the marvel of the world in which we live, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies pour forth his speech, says the psalmist, Psalm 19. And as the pinnacle of creation, human beings. 
created, if you like, if I can use this image, as priests to, to kind of gather together and to be the ultimate exclamation and expression of, of the whole of creation's worship. Giving back to the creator what he has first given to us. One writer has put it like this. Imagine yourself in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight which far from removing, pent up within us, sorry, remaining, pent up within us, flows out from us incessantly in perfect expression. Our joy no more separate from the praise in which it liberates and utters itself than the brightness the mirror receives is separable from the brightness it sheds. That's God's intention. It comes from him. Worship. The appreciation of beauty. Adoration. Praise. Just pouring out of all that God is and all that he has made. But, and every single one of us will be only too well aware of this, as we try and imagine perfect love, as we try and imagine perfect union with God, as we try and imagine perfect purity, we know we fall short of that glorious picture. The Bible describes that falling short as sin. Luther defined sin as a human being turned in upon himself. Worship, if you like, emanating from self, from my possessions, or my plans, or my friends, or my possessions. And life is reduced and made grayscale. We know because of sin and the fallen world in which we live that we cannot in our own strength enter into the purity of relationship that is required. We are incapable of worshipping with the purity of life that matches and mirrors the purity of the God who made us and calls us to worship him. And so my point of departure for these um, next few weeks on this uh, topic of worship has been actually Jesus' phrase in John chapter 4 and verse 23. You'll be familiar with it. Don't turn to it. I'll read it to you. But it's in conversation with the woman at the well. And uh, Jesus says this, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That, if you like, that sentence from Jesus is the springboard for what I want to say today and in the next two weeks. That the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Those are the worshippers that the Father seeks. And next week and beyond, I want to explore what Jesus means by a time has come how actually we understand the heart of Christian worship. I want to explore what he means by this um, enigmatic phrase, in the spirit and in truth. 
try and unpack that as we understand the worship of the whole of our lives. But I want to focus really by way of meditation as much as anything else on that phrase, worshippers that the Father seeks. The worshipping Father seeks worshippers to join him. You and me. He's jealous for us, zealous for us, that we might be abandoned to him in wonder, love, and praise. And that's why we're in Exodus this morning. You might have thought it was a slightly obscure reading. But Exodus, as I'm sure you'll be aware, and just for a few minutes now, uh, I want to take a just a few minutes to give something of a a kind of big picture, broad brushstroke under this idea, this heading, that the Father seeks worshippers, that God wants us to worship him, to join in the worship that is already taking place in the heavenly realms. And we're in Exodus because Exodus is, in one sense, a microcosm of the entire story of salvation. The people of Israel in the first few chapters, there is an absence of God. They are in captivity in Egypt. And we've just read in the final chapter of Exodus, God's presence fills their place of meeting. From absence to manifest presence. And we know the story in between, um, I'm assuming, that God initiates the rescue through the shed blood of a lamb. He rescues via the Passover and through the Red Sea, the people of Israel, and ushers them on their way into the promised land. Here's the extraordinary thing. We're familiar, I'm sure, with the, with the Passover and the plagues and the crossing the Red Sea. But did you know that the vast majority of the chapters, of the bulk of the book of Exodus, concerns itself with the detail of the setting up of the tabernacle? the sanctuary. You see, God has said to Moses as early as uh, chapter 3, we won't reference all these, but they'll come up on the screen. Here's the first one. God says to Moses, to the people of Israel, I'll rescue you. I'll be with you. I I want there to be this union. And so uh, the reason why I'll rescue you is so that you can worship. The one thing you'll do when you're brought out of Egypt is to worship God on this mountain. Rescued in order primarily to worship. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism that says the chief end of man is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Our chief aim, our main reason for existing here on earth is to worship God and enjoy him forever. To worship God. That's why they were brought out of, out of Egypt. It's God's idea that they should have a place where God should be seen to dwell. So in verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 8, these instructions of God to Moses. It wasn't Moses' idea. Moses didn't sort of call a little meeting and go, now guys, what do you think we should do? Do you think we should have a little place we reserve for God? It'd be a good idea. God says to Moses, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And all the way through, you, you pick up in these from chapter 25 through to 40, and God said, and God commanded, Look at, uh, in in the Bibles, if you've got them open, page 95. 
Chapter 40 begins, then the Lord said to Moses. And verse 16, the end of that first section that Joe read, Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded. God speaks, God decrees, God describes. And this, this detail about the um, setting up the, the lampstand and the altar and the, where everything should be and how everything should be, what the priests should wear, where they should stand, how they should minister, in minute detail. The temptation, if we're trying to read through the scriptures, we get to this bit and we think, oh, I can't, I can't be bothered to read all this detail. This is so sort of minute and, and kind of tedious. But the message, as we read through these chapters and uh, some of the chapters in Leviticus, is that this stuff is minutely important to God. He wants us to get it absolutely right. He, run, he wants our worship to be minutely prescribed and set out. This is important. It's vital. Not for God. He exists in Trinity. He knows how important it is for us. You know the, the greatest sin that time and time and time again God through the prophets rails against Egypt in the Old Testament? It's idolatry. It's the worship of something other than God. And it pains his heart when he thinks about how carefully he's prescribed that the people of God, God's people Israel, should worship him on earth. The tabernacle, housed by the tent of meeting. In scripture, if you come across this, the tent of meeting and the tabernacle are more or less synonymous. And the tabernacle literally means dwelling place. Fifteen chapters in Exodus devoted to the dwelling place of God amongst us, amongst his people. And we read at the end of chapter 40, verse 34, the cloud the, the manifest presence of God, how the people of Israel knew where to be in terms of relationship with God. Where was he moving? Where was he staying? Where is he? The cloud that covered the tent of meeting enters the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you notice this? Moses, even Moses, the one who went up to the mountain, the one who was, as it were, mediating between God and the people, the, the special one, we might say, in this context, even Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. God's glory filled his dwelling place amongst men and women. In a sense, what we have here in Exodus is the remaking of world order. After the, the flood and Noah, after uh, the um, captivity in Egypt, here is a remaking. And do you notice how the remaking of a world order, the reconstituting of a people in terms of relationship with God, begins with worship and with a place and a pattern and a priority for worship.
God wants to be with his people. He wants his people to appreciate his presence. The Father seeks worshippers. He seeks you and me. And like the people of Israel, we're called to be, if I can put it like this, cloud sensitive, not crowd sensitive. We love to flock to where the buzz is, to where the action is. We do it within Christian circles. Where's the place to be? Where do they have great worship or great this or great that? Let's go and join the crowd. But it's about God, not people, primarily. It's about being cloud-sensitive, not crowd-sensitive. Do you notice how when God fills the place that is designed for him, the tabernacle, his dwelling place, there's no room for humanity? Moses has to leave. Interestingly, when we see in 1 Kings chapter 8, when the tabernacle becomes permanently set up as the temple, and the same thing, the priests withdrew from the holy place, and the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. When Solomon builds a temple, the more permanent residence, if you like, that replaces a tabernacle, the same thing. When we think about our worship of God, no room for man and God, we are to be filled with him. Our minds washed through, our hearts washed through, our wills realigned to his, drunk in, dissolved by, giddy with him. When I, as I talk about the temple being the place where God tabernacles, God dwells with his people. And as we think about our studies in John, are there one or two bells beginning to ring? John 1.14, the word, the pre-existent word of God became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. God now wanting to reveal himself as living in Jesus amongst us. How much more close to human beings can God get than to become one of them? Jesus lives and moves as God's presence. And here in John, the other three gospel accounts all talk of him cleansing the temple and pronouncing judgment on the temple. But much later in their gospel accounts, Matthew, I think, 21, Luke chapter 19, Mark chapter 12. But John, it's one of the first things he does. Johnny preached on it earlier on uh, last term. Jesus, the, 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 the word tabernacling with us, goes straight to the temple where God dwells, as understood by Israel. And it, it's, a, it's a showdown. It's a confrontation right from the start. It, it, to use the parlance, this place, Jesus is effectively saying, as he stands in the temple, this place is not big enough for the two of us. One of us, temple built by hands, or temple soon to be raised by God, 
forever, one of us is going to remain and one of us is going to be demolished. That's what he says, effectively. Demolish this temple in three days and I'll raise it again. And John adds to help us, by this he meant his body. And of course the prediction came true. The temple was laid waste in around about AD 70. Not a stone stood upon stone. Unthinkable in Jesus' time. But the temple, God's temple, Jesus, died and was raised to new and everlasting, eternal life. And we know, we know as we jump ahead to Pentecost and to the outpouring of the Spirit, God is ever-present amongst his people who come to the Father through the Son and his sacrifice and are filled afresh with the glory of his presence, his Holy Spirit. And the New Testament writers, in catching up on this, Paul and, and Peter and others, let's uh, see what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, look, don't, don't you know? that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you. You are now the building. I, think, I don't think I've got this reference, but Peter says you like living stones. He kind of mixes his metaphor. But like living stones, you're being built into this house of God where, where God dwells. To the letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes this in, in concluding his opening phrases. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. The person of God, the person of his spirit, living in us, we become the temple, the, the tabernacle, if you like, of God. We are the locus of, of worship. Not that we worship ourselves. We worship what God is doing in and through us. We recognize that in one another. We look for signs of it. We call it forth. We encourage it. We rejoice in what God is doing. To complete the brushstroke in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, this voice proclaiming in the, the, the culmination of the vision from John, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what's missing <laughs> in this glorious picture, this, this consummation of the ages, what's missing is the temple. What's missing is a place. The worship, of the, 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 the presence of God is no longer associated with a place as with a person. And we, as we are made and transformed into the likeness of Christ, by the work of the Spirit in us, we become that place of worship. It's not complete in any of us yet, but it's begun. A time has come. A time has come when God calls forth by his Spirit worshippers. The Father seeks worshippers. The Father has done something to overcome the impact and the spoiling of sin, to provide atonement for sin so that his people can come and worship him. It's not something so much that we do, I, I know we do by way of response, but in a sense what God is calling us to do is to join in with what already exists. 
He's made it possible for us to join in. He's, he's made good the shortfall, the deficit. That's why Christian worship is in Christ. As we align ourselves to the, to the death that he paid in order that we might receive his life. So that as we go out tomorrow morning, wherever we go, to the hospital wards or to the classrooms, to the lecture hall, to the office, as we sit by the screen, as we advise or consult, as we report and pass on, whatever it is that we're called to do in the everyday of our lives, we do it with a view of joining in with the song of heaven. That whatever we do, as Paul says to the Colossians, whatever we do, whether we eat or whether we drink, we do it all for the glory of God. The whole of our lives caught up in worship of the everlasting God and creator of life. It's an awesome thought that God seeks us out and throughout history has been finding us in order to dwell amongst us, to live in us, to his praise and glory. Let's stand together. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing our final song of praise. It'll be our offertory hymn, an opportunity to give to the life and work of the church. But just for the moment, in the few moments of quiet that remain, let's just allow ourselves to feed on the truth of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. His desire to tabernacle with us. And that in Jesus and by his Spirit, we may become true worshippers. Some of us, just as I was speaking, actually perhaps over Christmas and New Year, we haven't really given ourselves an opportunity to re-evaluate, to re-prioritize. There may be some of us here this morning who've never done that. This may be the first time right now before God in the quietness of your heart you're re-evaluating life the way in which you live and what you live for I'd invite you now in the few seconds that there are to engage with God in terms of your work and your relationships, the things that lie ahead for the coming days and weeks. everything we give ourselves to would be done because we value and esteem God himself.
this prayer. Father, as we continue out on this new year, as we engage here at St. Dionys on our kind of growing up term, meet us by your spirit. Draw us more into Christ. Release in us praise and worship of the Father. Transform our lives, Lord. Our perspectives, our priorities. Rechannel our energies, our plans, our motives. Grow us up, Lord. For our sake and ultimately for your sake. Amen. Amen. As we remain standing, we're going to sing to the King of Kings.